0: Drawing room? Over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to The Drawing Room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. One of the foremost Shakespearean actors and directors of our time, John Bell, has brought the words of the Bard to stages across Australia and was, of course, the founding artistic director of Bell Shakespeare, the country's preeminent company. In a new show, one man in his time, John is looking back at the works of Shakespeare, what they teach us, why they've endured, and their impact on his own life. And John Bell is my guest in the drawing room. Welcome to you. Thank you very much, Andy. Take a seat. So what drew you to Shakespeare in the first place. is it? It's one thing to sort of mount a play, if you like, but to form a company dedicated to this work, there must have been a very, very deep love.
1: Well, I guess it was the work of one teacher. It so often is, isn't it? This one teacher just inspires you. And I was fortunate in having two very, very good English teachers when I was in high school, when I was in junior high school and then in senior high school, both men who loved the theatre, they loved poetry and they loved Shakespeare. And uh, they not only taught it very, very well and made us enjoy it, they took us off to the movies to see all the Shakespeare movies, took us to the theatre whenever there was a Shakespeare show on. So they really made it part of our daily lives and I have, you know, so much to thank them for,
0: those two guys. You said they taught it well. Apart from showing enthusiasm and taking on excursions to see films, how did they teach it well? Well, the first one, um, uh, he, uh, his name was Brother Elgar. Uh, this is at
1: Maitland Morris Brothers back in the 50s. Uh, he was a bit of a bit of a performer. And so instead of uh, opening your books and reading the play, he would perform the whole thing for us. Marching up and down the aisles, declaiming all the roles, um, describing the sets and the costumes and the pratfalls and all the business. He had us in stitches. We couldn't wait for the next round of Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, so he he was wonderful and really brought it to life. He performed the whole thing for us in the classroom. Uh, the other one was more uh, laid back, more intellectual sort of t- approach, but uh, very witty, very um, you know sort of uh, opened up the, the play's meaning for us, and obviously enjoyed it so much himself that uh, you know, that, that was contagious. And I think that kind of enthusiasm and is uh, is inspiring to kids of that age. I think if someone who, who you respect is that
0: impressed and that sort of devoted to it, then it must be, there must be something in this. So was it Midsummer, which was uh, your first love bite? from a Shakespearean production? Uh,
1: I guess so, yeah. It was because it was such fun the way he taught it. But then we went to the movies and I saw those Olivia movies, Henry V, Richard III, Hamlet, and that's what really got me going and I wanted to be up there like him, doing those words, doing those those plays.
0: What is it like dedicating your life to a single writer, even one such as Shakespeare? I mean, I asked Peter Evans, the current artistic director of Bell Shakespeare, this question when he was in the drawing room recently. I'd be curious to hear your perspective. Well, my life hasn't been entirely devoted to Shakespeare. It's been a very, very large part of it.
1: But I guess about half my career has been uh, producing and directing new Australian plays through the, the Nimrod Theatre, which Ken Haller and I established back in 1970. Um, and then uh, at, uh, at the Nimrod, uh, I did a, um, a great many of uh, all those plays of that era, especially David Williamson's plays. So I guess about half my life has been doing that, and uh, the other half has been the classics, but particularly Shakespeare, because I've always felt that if you're going to have a theatre repertoire, you should have a balance of new work uh, and really encouraging new writers and developing new work, but also a sense of where we've come from and uh, our heritage. Uh, And that, of course, Shakespeare is a very large part of that. Younger writers can learn from observing the, the way he structures his plays and the risks he takes and the kind of language he can use And uh, then if you're producing Shakespeare, you can learn a lot from the new writers about uh, what is relevant and topical and uh, what concerns us most today and to bring that to bear in your classical work so it doesn't become too antiquated or academic or dry but is always in touch with the zeitgeist
0: do you find that there is often parallel between those two themes there are universal themes in both modern and the classics aren't there oh yeah well of course a classic is a classic
1: because it's relevant people you wouldn't go on doing the play if it didn't mean anything anymore and shakespeare is still the most performed playwright in the world not just in english but in in all languages Um, And I guess uh, it's the themes of, um, you know, especially in politics and power, power struggles, uh, tyranny and autocracy. Uh, You can always find these parallels uh, glaringly, obviously, in Shakespeare's work, but also the themes of uh, young love and, uh, you know, both tragic and comic. They're all reflected there and you can find your own life reflected again and again in the plays.
0: Was it hard to step away as artistic director or perhaps a bit of relief? It was a
1: great relief to step away from all the, the board meetings and fundraising <laughs> activities, um, but I didn't step away from the artistic side. No, you've not been quite since. No, I mean, I've been very busy since, but uh, no, after 25 years, I thought that's that's enough now, it's time for me to step back and give the younger
0: generation a chance. So you mentioned some of those universal themes, certainly of, of Shakespeare uh, and and all the classics, but there is always this element of... Especially in your experience, in your formative years of teaching Shakespeare to young people and ha- making it relevant to them, do you find that that challenge is getting more and more difficult in this day and age, or it's, a, it's the same as it's always been? I think it's always been difficult. Um, the kids don't, uh, you know,
1: don't easily uh, adapt to what's difficult. If it's hard, they tend to shy away from it and go for the easy option. And that I'd always have a great innate appreciation of language and poetry and imagery. You've got to sort of uh, somehow in, infuse those things. But I would say it's getting harder now in that there's uh, so much distraction. There's so much happening in the social media. So many other options um, that uh, teachers are finding it harder and harder to engage the kids. And I think um, the, just the, the generation gap is is growing larger still. So. Um, we're getting. We're in danger of losing touch with our heritage, and that's why it's so important to keep it alive, keep teaching it, keep performing it, so we don't lose it. Because um, things can disappear if you don't take care of them.
0: That said, there is a real ribald comedy in even his most serious works. Do you think that that gets undersold sometimes because of the modern view of Shakespeare as sort of quote-unquote elite? I think the best way for
1: kids to appreciate Shakespeare is to see a good performance and I mean you've got to see a good one because there are lots of crook ones around, uh, see a good one that really brings all those things out and they understand that this is not something on a page, this is something that belongs on a stage with real people, out, you know, living these experiences and, and sharing them with us. So to see a really good live Shakespeare I think is, um, you know, the best possible way to get get involved and to get uh, to appreciate what you're what are you seeing?
0: Well, my first time, uh, since we're talking about first times, was seeing Macbeth by you. Oh, right. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> a whole generation of uh, Australians will probably, uh, have probably had those sorts of memories I too. I'm forgiven by now. <laughs> You have approached the same plays and the same characters many times over, many times over the years. How has your own perspective on those characters shifted as you've yourself have aged and matured and your perspective has changed as well?
1: Well, I think the plays mean something different to you uh, each after each 10 years. I thought I understood Hamlet completely at 16. I thought I knew all of what it was all about. I realised ten years later uh, it was it meant something entirely different. Ten years later, something again. And right now it means something very different again. I think um, we're living through an age now of great uncertainty and um, anxiety. Um, elements like uh, suicide, domestic violence, alcoholism are becoming um, more and more... Um, uh, a presence not just in Australia but around the world and that leads to a kind of trauma or um, despair that I think is echoed in Hamlet. You know, what is the point of going on? What is the point of living? What is the point of struggling? It's all just too hard. And that, that's brought home right now in what psychologists are calling the the, the age of depression. Mm. So I think uh, we can find all that reflected in Hamlet and what he's going through and what he's trying to sort out about his um, his own values. Yeah,
0: he was uh, existentially, uh, you know, uh, cool before everybody else, way, we could say. <laughs>
1: way ahead of his time, that's right, yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's look at a couple of specific characters, starting with Richard III. Your performance, I suppose, was several decades ago now, was magnificent, and Kate Mulvaney... Uh, brought a very different Richard to life more recently for the company. But how do you approach a character like Richard who others see as the villain?
1: Well, I think you've got to always love the character you're playing. Unless you love the character, you can't really get inside them and you can't really convey that. So you have to sort of put aside your moral scruples and uh, your own moral uh, you know, landscape and say, this is what this guy is doing uh why is he doing it and if you look back at say the life of richard iii as told by shakespeare he grew up in a very violent uh generation one of uh, you know cutthroat dog eat dog sort of world and was uh the victim of uh prejudice and bigotry and uh mockery because of his deformities so i think if you take all that into account and say this is why he's turned out the way he is uh it's not surprising and if i were him i'd be feeling very much this way too So you have to transfer your own, um, you know, uh, how would I feel if I was in that situation? What would I do? And bring yourself to, you know, to um, totally identify with the character and his outlook.
0: On ABCRN, I'm Andy Park. I'm delighted to have John Bell as my guest in the drawing room. We're talking about Shakespeare and John's show One Man in His Time. Of course, The Tempest was one of Shakespeare's final plays and you uh, matched that mood when you staged it at the end of your time as uh, Artistic Director of Bell Shakespeare. Talk to me about taking on Prospero and what he represents. Well, it's interesting.
1: Um, John Gielgud, who has played Prospero about four times, said he found the part quite difficult uh, because uh, in the first scene he just tells everybody else their life stories then he disappears for most of the play then comes back and ties up all the loose ends um but i found uh, it was worth the uh, worth the struggle because when it comes back at the end um he has to go through this huge act of reconciliation forgiving his enemies Um, admitting his own dark side and stepping down from his career, giving up his art, his profession and going into retirement. Huge, huge issues for anybody to have to go through. So he starts uh, the play, Vengeful and um, Punitive, and then goes through a total transformation. Um, his better spirit, Ariel, convinces him that the only way to escape the island, in other words, to get out of his own shell, is to forgive people and move on. And that's a very big lesson. And I always enjoyed playing that scene because uh, the act of forgiveness, even uh, you know, when you're only performing it, is very somehow very cleansing and very um, very satisfying thing to do.
0: And that's for the author. Do you care about the person behind the words? I mean, is the author dead when you approach great works like this or is art, all art, autobiographical? I think all great art is, to a large extent, autobiographical.
1: Not consciously so, but it is great because the artist puts into it something so intimate, so personal, um, that it's a great act of generosity and I think we appreciate that. And uh, the authenticity of it is striking and that's, that's why it appeals to us on a subliminal level we understand this is something coming straight from somebody's heart that they really uh, you know are giving us a large part of themselves so the author's always alive whether it's Mozart or Shakespeare or Chekhov uh, or Beethoven, they are there
0: alive when they are being performed and so have uh, what have you put into your performances that is autobiographical
1: Oh. Gosh, I wouldn't know where to start. Uh, Spencer Tracy said, uh, the art of acting is learn your lines, hit your marks and tell the truth. (laughs) And I think uh, that's what it has to do. You have to sort of identify with the character and um, tell the truth about yourself, how you react under these circumstances. Don't try and be like somebody else. Don't act it. Sort of be the person you are performing and bring yourself
0: as close into alignment as possible with those words and that character. You were talking before about sort of having empathy for the character uh, and, you know, you see a deep well of empathy in Shakespeare's writing. However, does that empathy still translate to the modern day? I think empathy is uh, very necessary to the modern day. Uh, more
1: than ever, we need empathy with, um, you know, uh, re- refugees, uh, people who are unemployed, people who are disabled or disadvantaged. I think empathy is what makes society tick. And so if you find the empathy in a Shakespeare play and character and scenario, um, that is what you give the audience. And you say, this is a, you know, a play about understanding, sharing, forgiving... Um, all of those things that make us human.
0: Uh, how did Shakespeare approach history? Because, I mean, I know he's been called a royal apologist, but that's probably not how you see it. No, no. I think he's very critical
1: of, uh, of the monarchy. Uh, most of his kings get where they get through skullduggery and they end up badly. And especially in King Lear, he shows us um, an arrogant and gullible old king reduced to madness and nakedness wandering in a storm. Uh, I think he had, uh, you know very sort of a sceptical view of the divine right of kings, for instance. I think he used history as a sort of a moral um, scoreboard. Uh, the facts didn't so much matter as the, the moral imperatives that were driving the characters and the kind of world they were creating. Uh, so history was a thing to be used, not to be scrupulously observed and and reproduced, but what can we learn from this and uh, what can we we learn from each of these characters
0: in these situations? It's probably like asking uh, which one of your children you prefer, but Mm. is there (laughs) one scene or one monologue that stands out above all else for you? Oh my gosh, now you're asking the hardest (laughs) question of all.
1: Um, Oh golly. I think uh, one of King Lear's speeches, when he's uh, reduced to helplessness and he prays to the people uh, who he has um, betrayed, really, his own subjects, poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your unfed sides and houseless heads? Uh, I'm sorry, I'll, I forget the rest, but it's sort of, uh, you know, he's asking forgiveness of the people who he's uh, neglected for so long. Why does that mean something to you? Um, I think it's a great act of humility. If someone can admit that they've uh, made these huge, huge mistakes and really uh, made life so hard for everybody else, to to be able to ask forgiveness and to admit your failure is a a very big thing. And is that monologue in One
0: Man in His Time? Yes, only I know it better than that. <laughs> you of caught course. me off guard. I, I did. I did put you on the spot. Uh, <laughs> what, what else can audiences expect in this production?
1: Well, uh, I try to give them a pretty fair sampling of uh, the tragedies. I do bits of Hamlet, bits of um, uh, Rich uh, Macbeth, but also some comedy pieces. There's wonderful uh, scene of two old uh, country justices, Justice Shello and Justice Silence. Wonderful, very sort of down-to-earth um, everyday comedy. And there's a marvellous character called Jack Cade who's a kind of modern-day Donald Trump, a sort of a a demagogue with uh, no policies but lots of devious appeal to the mob. So I try to cover, you know, as much as possible of the range of Shakespeare's characters, male and female, but also keep reflecting on how it's affected my life and uh, my thinking and how I've,
0: you know, how I've grown as a result. You mentioned earlier that, uh, in fact, you said if we don't ca- take care of something, we can lose it. Mm. Even as something as timeless as Shakespeare, what is the care that we need to take here? Because if they are timeless themes, we just have to communicate them, right? And, and how would you, you know, communicate them best to a new audience uh, in a day and age of distraction and confusion and of social media opinion? Well, look, there's always been distractions and other
1: options for people, you know, in terms of entertainment or what they watch or listen to. Um, People like Mozart and Beethoven were probably listened to by a very small section of society who could afford to go to concerts. Uh, The bulk of the population would only have heard music that was played in the street. Um, So, you know, orchestras uh, have a a function to keep those great composers alive and theatre companies have the same obligation to look after our heritage and make sure they perform regularly. Uh, The great classics, not just Shakespeare but Chekhov and uh, we haven't seen any restoration comedy for years, for instance um so there is a, a huge range of material that needs to be preserved and it's no good sitting on the shelf you have to take it down and bring it to life and perform it and that way you train generations of actors who get used to performing it and you train younger generations of audiences who can understand what's happening if you play it well they might understand, understand every single word literally but they understand the situation they understand the scenario they understand what the big issues are and the emotional statements being made by the actors so um, you know, I don't think a lot of people get every
0: single syllable of Shakespeare, but they don't just get enough to keep them, you know, well satisfied. Well, uh, care for it you have certainly across your career. It's been an absolute delight to have you come in thank you very much, in Andy. The Drawing room, John Bell has been my guest in the drawing room. You can see him in One Man in His Time at the Nielsen Nutshell, which is the new Bell Shakespeare Theatre at Wharf Two Three in Sydney on the second and third of September, and in Melbourne the week after. been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.